Uh, it, it really is my great pleasure to join you this morning. I uh, apologize in advance. I've been fighting a, a, a cough all weekend, and so if my voice gives way, uh, I promise I'll drink some water and try to make it easier on your ears. But uh, I, I'm excited. I, I was actually here in March of this year, uh, passing through, and just was able to stop by and, and visit with you as a guest. And uh, to be able to come back several months later and to see what God's doing in your midst is very encouraging to my own heart. And uh, I, I can say this, I, I don't know all the ins and outs of your church here in Indianapolis, um, but I do know that here with your leadership, you have a group of people who are committed to the gospel of Jesus Christ, you're committed to the word of God, you're committed to making disciples for God's glory and fame, and so I can say this with confidence that a few states away in South Carolina at Summit Church, there's a leadership team there that is thankful for you and is praying for you, and is partnering with you uh, along the same passions um, to make the gospel of Jesus Christ known to all peoples, because it's the only hope for our cities. And, uh, and so we're committed to that, and we're excited. I'm excited to be with you this morning to just share a little bit about uh, uh, what God's doing in our midst, but more importantly, to share with you God's word, because I think in and of itself, it has power and the ability to give life. And, uh, and so we just, we're grateful and we're thankful for the opportunity. Uh, I, I am one of the pastors and elders at a church called Summit Church in Greenville, South Carolina, in Spartanburg, South Carolina, uh, a few campuses there that we uh, are giving leadership to. And our mission is to give every man, woman, and child the repeated opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel without them ever having to come or go anywhere. And that's not really a theological statement about who God is going to, to, to rescue and bring to himself, as much as it's a theological statement about we're committed to joining him to make accessible and available the message of Jesus Christ, the gospel, to every single person that God will give us the opportunity to do so with. And that the beauty and brilliant design of God is that he has made it known that his plan A, and there is no plan B or plan C, is to declare that truth to the nations through his church, of which you are part of and I am a part of, and the, the church globally, the big C church, made up of all kinds of little expressions of that, of that church, like Harvest and Summit and, and thousands and thousands of others. Christ followers all over this globe who understand the beauty and depth of the gospel and then make it known wherever they do life. See, from the very beginning of God's story, like Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 3, we look to God and we say, hey, thanks, but no thanks. I think I can do this on my own. I got it. And, and, and we give this stiff, stiff arm to God that, that really has left all of humanity in a living death apart from Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul in, in Ephesians chapter 2 says that we are dead in our sins. He, he literally says you're like walking corpses. You have no ability to rescue yourselves. You can never muster up enough willpower and strength to present yourself to God in a way that God would accept you and love you on your own accord. You're helpless. 
But the Bible doesn't stop with that picture. The Bible shows us a God who is relentless in the pursuit of those whom he loves. He pursues us with a never-ending, never-stopping, unfailing kind of love. God, in Jesus Christ, has offered reconciliation to all who will throw themselves on his mercy in Jesus God saw us in a living death. And according to Ephesians and according to the pages all throughout Scripture, has made us alive in Christ. If indeed we have given ourselves to the work of Christ on our behalf. We are simply committed to the biblical reality that God's plan to make this glorious truth known is his church. It's you, it's me, it's us. It's the beauty that that our lives intersect the world all around us by God's design. Here's the reality. The gospel of Jesus Christ will go everywhere that God wants it to go today because it goes in you and it goes in me. That when you go to Walmart to buy milk or Lowe's to buy whatever you buy at Lowe's. It's really the second reason you go there. I'm just telling you from my perspective and I think from God's perspective, that's how with it God is. That's how intentional God is. That you don't live in the neighborhood that you live in by accident. That your kids don't go to the school they go to by accident. That you don't eat at the restaurants you eat at by accident. That you don't know the people you know by accident. You could have lived 700 years ago in the mountains of Tibet. I'm sure they were great people. But that's not where God has you. God has you here now. In time and history, your life is playing out right now. For a purpose. A purpose far greater than we could ever imagine. See, everyone who has put their faith and trust and dependency in Jesus Christ has a grace story to tell. It's one of our values. We've been doing a series at our church uh, where we've been talking with our folks, just kind of focusing ourselves back to some of our core values as as they rise out of Scripture. We believe they are the things that, (coughs) that God wants to continue to transform within us and bring to life the image of Christ in our own lives. And and one of those things is that we would proclaim the gospel. Yes, we want to show it in deed. We want to make sure that we love people. We want to make sure that we tangibly express the gospel, but not at the expense of proclaiming the truth of the gospel. And and so you you talk to people, and, and sometimes we complicate things, but there's a sense in which all of us in this room with many different paths and, and many different turns and twists and, and many different kinds of, uh, of backgrounds and histories have a story. And if you know Christ and if you've given yourself to Christ and his accomplishments on your behalf, there's a unifying theme there. <coughs> Grace. Grace. It's a story of how God invaded sinful death and made you alive. It's a story of how God has rescued you from the impossible life of trying to rescue yourself. It's a story now at work within you of how the perfect one gave up everything for imperfect ones. 
It's a story to tell. It's a story to shout, truth be told. It's a story that God has designed to put on display so that the watching eyes and listening ears of the world would know this, that the generous God of all grace is inviting them into life in Jesus Christ. That though we lived in rebellion and sin, God pursued us in his son Jesus Christ who paid the death that we should have paid. He died our death. He lived the life we should have lived. And he extends to us his righteousness for our sinfulness. See, we made a horrible exchange. We exchanged the glory of God for a lie. God made a glorious exchange. He exchanged the righteousness of his son Jesus Christ on our behalf to pay the debt for our sin and give us his righteousness. And this work of grace and this glorious story of God <coughs> is what helps us find our significance and our place and our purpose in our own story. See, maybe just maybe, God is so with it, so brilliant, so intentional that your life and story playing out now in time and history around the people he wants in the place he wants is for a reason far greater than we could ever realize. Perhaps our stories of grace only find their significance and only find any amount of meaning whatsoever when they find themselves in the grand story of God being played for all of eternity. If you have your Bibles, I'd encourage you to turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. It'll also be on the screen. If you don't have a Bible, we would encourage you to bring one. If you don't have access to one, the ushers here will gladly give you a Bible this morning that you can follow along with us uh, because we do believe, as I've said already, the Bible is the word of God and the, and the power of God at work within us as, as His Holy Spirit is in this place teaching us and allowing us to hear from Him. And, and we're excited to look at His word this morning. I want to pray, and then I want to dive into what Peter's talking about because I think it has everything to do with our lives and what our lives have to do in the grand story of God's grace and in the mission of what God is up to in the world as He reconciles people to Himself. God, we love you. And we thank you for your grace. And we thank you that you have shown yourself to be a gracious and loving and, and faithful God. <coughs> you are a God who when we wanted nothing to do with you, wanted everything to do with us and, and pursued us and spared no expense to demonstrate the fullness of your love. For your own glory and fame, God, we acknowledge that you are God alone and a God who rescues and today, as we think about the fact that your grace is at work in our lives and that there's intentionality behind that, there's sovereignty behind that, there's a God with purpose behind that, that we would be encouraged not only to, to, to continue to understand what you're up to in our lives, but to continue to share the beauty and the depth of Jesus Christ in the gospel with every man and every woman and every child that our life intersects. Give us ears to hear your truth. Give us the strength and the power and the grace to live it out in obedience, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1 Peter chapter 1, there's a, a, 
a very familiar idea where Peter talks about this idea of holiness, that you should be holy because your Father is holy. And that can seem daunting to us because if we take at least two seconds to self-evaluate, we acknowledge that there are many moments we're not very holy. <coughs> and so the fear is, well, what do I do? Do I just, do I try harder? Do I white knuckle it and say, okay, all right, this time I'm going to be holy. This time I'm going to clean myself up. This time I'm going to do what God told me to do. Pull my bootstraps up and I'm just going to work harder. Don't hear me wrong. Grace is not opposed to effort. It's opposed to earning. But it's not opposed to you disciplining yourself and working hard. Uh, but there's a sense in which we look at something like that and it seems so overwhelming and so daunting. We go, well, what? how in the world could I do that? Well, Peter doesn't leave us stranded. Peter follows that by reminding us of a glorious truth truth of the gospel look at verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the feudal ways inherited from your forefathers not with perishable things such as silver or gold but with the precious blood of christ like that of a lamb without blemish or spot he was foreknown before the foundation of the world but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Now Peter Peter says, hey, I I do want you to be holy, and I want your lives to matter, and I want your lives to tell the great story of grace of a God who is at work within you, but this is what I want you to remember. You were ransomed. (laughs) Remember, you were in a living death. God bought you out of bondage. God bought you out of death. How did he do it? With silver and gold? No, he did it with the blood of Jesus Christ. The spotless, perfect blood of his own son. And then it says, according to Peter, that God knew this was going to happen. Before anything else occurred, before all of creation, God knew. And he still paid the price Because he did it so that those of you who would be rescued by his great power would know that your faith and your hope are in God. Not you. Not anything else. In God. Peter begins with this gospel reminder that without Christ, we are all victims of a massive hijack. We were once being held hostage by our own sinfulness and the power of Satan at work in our lives, but this place of captivity was called our feudal ways. Uh, One pastor said it this way, all was futile, the blowing up of bubbles that burst. Life may have been full of busyness and building, but it all signified nothing and would have ended in an eternal whimper. But Christ paid the ransom. He purchased our freedom by his own life. As 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on a tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And now, nothing that we do in his name is futile. Instead, everything we do has eternal significance in his name. 
And then Peter continues in verses 22 and 23. He gives us this gospel reminder and he continues to develop it. He says, if we put our hope and faith in God's Christ, then our souls are purified. Peter, what Peter says is, well, at that moment, your sins are forgiven. Old desires are hind- that, were, that hindered love are now replaced with new ones so that you might love one another and love others. And you are reborn by the living and abiding word of God. And the Holy Spirit comes in and the very character and nature of God begins to spread through you until you're fully conformed to the image of Christ. So Peter clearly says that conversion to Christ is not simply a decision to believe some facts about God. It is a new person being born by the imperishable word of God, the gospel. It's not that you were dead and then somebody cleaned you up. It's not that you were dead and then God just improved how you looked dead. He made you alive. He rescued you. Pulled you out. This is what God has done. God gives us new birth, new life, and a new story. And Peter says, Yeah, I want you to be holy, but you you know what? Can I just remind you of how that will become a reality in your life? Throw your heart and mind back to the foot of the cross and the empty tomb every day, every waking moment of the day and remind yourself you were ransomed. You were bought when you were dead. You were given life and hope and faith in God. It's by his power, his strength and his great grace that you have a story at all, let alone a story that allows you to even think about holiness. So he first calls our heart back to the gospel. But then he says, listen, that's what God has done. Therefore, in chapter 2, Peter urges us in how we ought to live. This is how you ought to live in light of what God has done. Look at chapter 2 and verse 1. It says, so put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. Peter says that we ought to lay aside all the old desires of malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and slander, and in their place there should be a new sign of life. What's the new sign of life, according to Peter? Desire for Christ. (laughs) He he says, so uh, this new life in you is is exemplified by a strong desire for more of the one who rescued you. So conversion to Christ is not simply belief about facts uh, about God. It's, it's actually a new person being born. <coughs> Excuse me. But conversion to Christ is caused by tasting his kindness and being convinced that no other beverage in this world, job, spouse, sex, money, pleasure, Success, approval, will ever satisfy your heart like Christ. Not only will they not do it, they are incapable of doing it. 
and they were never meant to do it. Most of those things are good things. A spouse, a home, success, <coughs> the approval of others. But for so many of us, they become the thing that we then try to attach our significance to. And, and Peter's simply reminding us, hey, your life and your story of grace and your purpose and your ability to be righteous and holy and, and just and fight for those things in this world has nothing to do with those things. And when you put your hope in those things, here's what happens. Either they will ultimately crush you because they can't deliver enough or you will crush them. Because you'll put the weight of your own justification on the shoulders of something that was never meant to do that for you. So he says, if you want to know how to live, then you take yourself back to the heart and the beauty of Christ. This is the sign of life after conversion, that you desire more and more of Christ and his word and his kindness. If there cannot be a healthy baby who desires no milk, then there cannot be a Christian who desires not Christ. I get it. There are seasons of faith that are dry and sometimes void of of the vitality that that we wish they had, like a baby who gets sick and loses its appetite for a day or two, but soon it regains it, otherwise it dies. Peter says, if you want to live out the implications of the gospel, then you hunger and you thirst and you crave And you run to more and more and more of Christ. He changes the metaphor in in verse 4. He says, as you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious. You yourselves are like living stones being built up as a spiritual house to be holy priesthood. To offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture. Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, a chosen and precious stone. And whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe. But for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. He changes the metaphor and he says, listen, Jesus Christ is not just the milk that we should desire. He's the precious chosen cornerstone that we can come to and build our entire lives upon individually and as a church. Some will reject the stone and stumble over it into their own eternal doom. But verse 7 says, to you who believe, he is precious. To you who believe, he's your honor. If you do not feel his preciousness, if you do not desire him like a baby desires milk, then Peter says, well, you should examine the roots of your faith and see if they're gaining life from the precious blood of Christ and the promises of God, or if they're simply curled around the dry rocks of habit, tradition, custom, form, peer pressure, guilt, whatever the case may be. Peter just asked, does does pursuing and treasuring Christ attract your heart's deepest affections and your mind's greatest attention? 
Or is he just a duty to be performed? And according to Peter, and according to every page of scripture, Jesus is worth so much more than that. He's worth so much more than anything else we might be tempted to trust in that the world would throw our way. So much so that every loss endured to have more of Christ can actually be endured with joy. Right? I mean, you remember the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 3, he gives us this real beautiful living example of that reality. In verses 7 and 8, he says, But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, trash, waste. Why? In order that I might gain Christ. See, the mark of a saint or a child of God in Scripture is not that we are in and of ourselves, perfect. <clears throat> it's often that you would find someone who has been transformed by the power of God in the gospel of Jesus Christ, who is never satisfied with his or her present condition. But they are hungry because the more they taste, the better Jesus becomes. He doesn't diminish with time, he increases. The better you know him, the more you love him. And Peter knew that the gospel was what gave us the freedom to live out the implications of a holy life. And so Peter calls us back to the gospel and then he tells us how we ought to live. But he reminds us that even the motivation for how to live that way is that we've already been loved. We've already been accepted. We've already been paid for. It's the beauty and depth of Christ that fuels life. So the question left to ask is, okay, Peter, what difference does it make? I know what God has done. I know how I ought to live. But why does it matter at all? Look what Peter says. He, Peter's going to tell us that our power to give a compassionate witness about Jesus to unbelievers in this world will grow in direct proportion to how precious Jesus is to us. And that actually, <coughs> that was God's plan from the get-go. Look at verse 9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you've received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles, this is not your home. I urge you to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. 
Why does it matter? Peter says, verse 9, that we might proclaim his excellencies. Look, the text explicitly says that God chose us and made us his new people for the purpose of telling others about his excellencies, specifically about how wonderful it is to be brought from darkness to light, from death to life, from bondage to freedom. Uh, One commentator notes, to put it another way, we've been chosen in order to declare how precious Jesus is to us. Therefore, we can infer from this text that our power to make that declaration will only increase with direct proportion to how precious Jesus really is. You cannot bear credible witness to something of value if you do not feel its value. Therefore, the most important, critical question we can ask ourselves if we hope to grow in confidence and clarity in sharing our own stories of grace and proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ is this. How much is Jesus worth? Can I just be honest for a second? Because I'm not, I'm not trying to send us into a a guilt trip of of hammering ourselves and beating ourselves up. I'm trying to get all of us, myself included, to think and ponder the question, how much is Jesus worth? Because as I listen to this, and as I study this, and as I read this text, and I think about that question, then I have to be honest with you and say, hey, I don't find it hard to talk about things that I love and value. I just don't. I can talk about my children and my wife and the sports team I follow and the things I enjoy doing as hobbies like like it's nobody's business. It's so easy. There are people who don't want to hear what I have to say about those things and I still tell them. There, there's, there's a sense in which when you find something beautiful It's only really fulfilled when you show it to someone else and they too find it beautiful. I can tell you that I love a new song out because of its lyric and because of its melody, but when you hear it and your face lights up, that changes it altogether. It changes. And Peter is simply saying that the church is made up of people who have been rescued out of death to life who've been called to live in a certain way because of the reality of what God's grace has done already in their lives. I don't obey and you don't obey so that God will love us more, like us more, bless us more. I obey because I could not be more loved, blessed, and and cared for by the grace of God demonstrated in the person of Jesus Christ. I don't obey so that I'll be accepted. I obey because I am accepted on the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And we have a story to tell, and it's something that we value because when we take time to think about it, we realize apart from the rich grace of God, we would still be dead. So what about you? Do you have a great story to tell? Have you transferred your trust from yourself to the only one willing to pay your ransom and debt? 
Do you treasure Christ and build your life on his enduring word? Or is the primary figure in your story of grace still you? See. Peter does something very beautiful for us. He. He takes our hearts back to the gospel. He challenges the way we ought to live. He tells us why it's significant. But he also kind of gives us a way to share the gospel of Jesus Christ. This is who we were. This is what God has done. This is how it's affecting the way we live. And this is why we care about it at all. There was actually a famous comedian who once, who was an atheist and agnostic and wanted nothing to do with God to this day to my knowledge wants nothing to do with God but a a man pursued him after a show one time and gave him a bible and wrote in the bible a nice note and he goes online and 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 this comedian does a video where he's talking just to the camera on YouTube and he said how much he appreciated this man seeking him out and trying to tell him about the things of scripture and and about the gospel and he he said I just want you to know I, I still don't believe But um, this man thinks that these are decisions of eternal weight and value. So how much would he have to hate me to not tell me about it? And, And all I'm saying is Peter keeps pulling our heart back to the gospel because he knows that there's rich value there and that the more we value it and the more we treasure it and the more we see its beauty and the more we're confronted with the depth and and love and scope of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ, we won't be able to stop shouting and declaring the story of God's grace. God is reconciling the world to himself. And he has said that we have been spread out through all the corners of the earth to declare to the world, be reconciled to God. Here's three things Peter does for us that I think help us in sharing our own story of grace. First, he wraps our minds around the gospel because that's where all of our stories find their meaning. He says, this is what God has done. And this is where your life finds its its significance. This is the means by which you are justified in this world. This is the place where all your stories look different and all of them take different twists and turns. They're all unified in this, that Jesus Christ is the only hope of your life. In chapter 1, verse 18, and chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, we are a ransomed people who once had nothing and lived in death, but now in Christ we have life to the fullest and a magnificent story to tell about God's rescuing us from darkness into light. I love chapter 2 and verse 10. Once you were not a people, now you're a people. Once you did not know mercy, now you know mercy. That's the gospel. This is our story. Secondly, he wraps our hearts around the treasure of Christ because he far exceeds the value and worth of any other desire that we may possess. This is how our grace stories tell what God has done. In chapter 2, verses 1 through 8, Christ becomes the foundation for all of life. Peter says, everything in life is now built upon Christ. Marriage, parenting, dating, jobs, money, sex, academics, athletics, success, failure, approval, rejection, possessions, relationships... Fill in the blank. It all finds its significance and place in him. Apart from him, we can do nothing. And apart from him, according to the Apostle Paul, everything else is like waste, trash. Peter says, no, I'll wrap your heart around 
the gospel. I'll wrap your mind and heart around this reality that there's no greater treasure than Christ. This is your story. And lastly, he wraps our stories around his mission because that's what God will use to proclaim his beauty and glory to a world chained to a selfish death. This is why it, this is why it matters that you and I learn to tell our story of grace in any form or fashion that we can because we are a chosen people and God has said from the foundation of the world that he would declare his excellencies to every man, every woman, and every child through you. Through people who've been ransomed. Through people who've been set free. Through people who realize there is no other place to go to find life. This is your story. See, I, I fear that we complicate this too much, myself included. We're so worried about offending people and we're so worried that we don't have the right words to say or that we won't be able to answer the hard questions. And I get that because I live that. What if we just learn to share this story of grace in the natural rhythms of life and just declare it as clearly as you know it? Uh, what if you walked up to people at work or at the store and, and you just let them know that you're connected to a church and that actually means something to you and you just leave it at that? What if the next time you're around them that you just let them know that, that you have faith and that your faith and the person of Jesus Christ is important to you and affects the way you live. What if you ask them about their life and their story and instead of trying to answer all their problems and questions, you just listened? What if when they shared with you the hurts of life, you offered to pray and you literally prayed for them? What if when given the opportunity, you opened the word of God with them? What if when the Holy Spirit leads you know beyond a shadow of a doubt that you have the right and the, and the privilege and the responsibility to declare to them that their only hope in life is Jesus Christ. What if we just took opportunities that God lays out before us every day? Uh, we had a guy in our church and he, he loved another guy at his office and he was trying to pour into him and, and, and this gentleman wanted nothing to do with spiritual things and so this guy just kept being kind to him and loving him and praying for him. And, and one day he comes into work about a year or so later and the guy's on the phone and his mom had just passed away and the guy from Summit walks up to him and just wraps his arms around him and says, hey, I love you, I'm praying for you, let me know if there's anything I can do. The guy reaches down into his book bag, pulls out a Bible that this guy from Summit Church had bought for him a year earlier and says, will you just read me something out of here? Like, can I just say this? If God's sovereign plan was to tell the world of his excellencies through his church, maybe, just maybe, that the people he wants to bring to himself that are in, around and, and in your life, maybe God will beat you there. <laughs> maybe God's already working when you show up. What if every moment of your life were an opportunity to magnify the story of grace that's not really about you? What if every moment God gave 
we would remember in all of our flaws and in all the ways that we will probably fumble through the story. He's a patient, gracious God. Eager to make his excellencies known. Eager to save. I'll leave you with this. I had a professor in school who shared with me that um, a long time ago he was in college and they were going to houses and they were just knocking on doors and going in and reading tracts to people. And he said, um, he said, I went to this house and I knocked on the door and like an 80-year-old lady came and opened the door and I said, can I come in and talk to you? And she said, yes. Good luck with that these days. <laughs> but that's what, that's what happened. He went inside and he opened the track and he said, for 15 minutes, I never made eye contact with her. I just told her the story of what God had done in this written piece of paper. I wasn't eloquent. I actually fumbled over my words and I was a nervous wreck and I get done and I look up and she's bawling. And she says, I want everything you just talked about. All I'm saying is, you have a story of grace to tell. And it's not really a story about you. It's a story that magnifies a God who loved you when you were dead. Who gave you life and gives you hope and purpose now and significance now. And who is sovereignly directing the story and path of your life. So that no person in no place that you come in contact with is there by accident. That you might confidently share with them everything you know about the radical grace of God. And entrust that their response is in his hands and up to his power and for his glory and his fame. So tell your stories, shout your stories, share the story of God's grace at work in your life for the glory and fame of God and know this, in doing so, you are fulfilling what God wanted all along, that the church would rise up and declare the excellencies of his glory and his beauty and his grace for now and forever, in Jesus' name. God, we love you and we need you. If left to ourselves, we so frequently abandon you we so frequently run from the things that matter in our lives the most. We ask, God, that you would give us the confidence in your gospel, the freedom and strength in your grace to live out the implications of the gospel and to share the grace and work of God in our lives with every single person. Every man, every woman, every child would have opportunity to see, hear, and respond to the gospel without ever having to come or go anywhere because the gospel goes in us. You have chosen a people for yourself. Every ounce of this story is about you. Every second is for you. Consume our hearts and minds with this great rescue. Teach our hearts and our lives how to share the beauty of grace and the gospel winsomely, attractively, boldly. And may it all occur for your glory and your honor and your fame. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.